So if you weren't here last week, you missed what I thought was quite a scintillating lecture on typology. Why are you laughing? Isn't that funny? Seriously, though, um, last week we had an opportunity to step away from the story of David for just a bit to um, get an idea uh, of, uh, with, with some precision of what the shadows and patterns and, and, and types look like within Samuel. We explored how types work and how you can feel confident that those types are legitimate. But today we're back in the text. And boy, oh boy, I couldn't have chosen a more perfect follow-up passage than this one. Some passages are packed with connections within the book that they're in. I love preaching those texts because of all the all of the connections are kind of fresh on your mind. With characters and events you've taken time to explore and understand pretty recently. So when you come across passages like that, the work of reading just becomes so rewarding. All of a sudden, the characters that you've been gradually discovering move with life and the action of the story comes to a head. The book you've been reading becomes meaningful in powerful ways when you read passages like that. All of that happens when you read passages that are rich with connections within the book that they're in. But other passages are packed with connections to other books In the Bible. And I love preaching those texts too because the characters and the events that you've been exploring for weeks or for months all of a sudden contribute rich meaning to the whole work of God, to the redemptive history of God's people from Adam to new Adam, from creation to new creation. When you stumble across passages that are packed with connections to other books in the Bible, you're reminded that these are. The words of God. And all of these promises made in ancient days among ancient peoples are fulfilled by the work and the words and the life and the power of Jesus. And that's why I love preaching passages that are packed with connections to other books in the Bible. But today we get to read and study a passage that is rich with connections within the book of Samuel. And that's awesome. But this This passage just happens to be one of those few passages that's also packed with connections to other books in the Bible. So we get the best of both worlds. This passage, rightly understood, is a tool to understand the book of Samuel as well as a tool to understand the words and work of Jesus. So let's dive right in. Read with me from 1 Samuel 23. First Samuel 23. It is on page 245 in your pew Bible, if you use a pew Bible. Alright, let's read together. Behold, uh, now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. 
But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So you may remember that David has been running from Saul for quite a while now. David is the better man that Samuel prophesied would be given the throne of Israel. And Saul has been jealous of David for what appears to be several years now. And all of this building jealousy and all of this building suspicion has led to a bounty on David's head. Saul has, in not so many words, promised fields and rank to any who would resist David's influence. And and he's sent his guard and his advisors to seek David's life. In response, David has fled the boundaries of Israel at least twice and has settled in a cave in the Judean wilderness. Not long after this point, the bitter and the broken and the indebted among Israel flee to David, along with his family and Abiathar, the priest, sole survivor of Saul's slaughter. And that scene, with all of these bitter and broken and rejected, and the priest and David, the coming king, and his family, all of them in a cave, that's the scene where our passage begins. So one of the first things I usually do when approaching a text like this is to try and think about it in the broadest terms possible. I think this sort of practice is helpful because you begin to see patterns in a book or illusions within a book that you might have missed if you dove into the details too quickly. So to get an idea of context, let's step back from the passage and try to think about it in the broadest terms possible. As far as I can tell, here's the situation. One, the anointed king 
has fled to a cave in the wilderness. Two, he is surrounded by 600 men and a priest. And three, a Philistine army is attacking a city in Israel. So those are the most basic terms. The anointed king, the priest, and 600 men have fled to a cave in the wilderness. Meanwhile, the Philistine army has risen up against a city in Israel. Now, does this scene remind you of anything? More specifically, if you were to think back into the story of Samuel, would you make any connections? Are there any patterns emerging? What I'm thinking of is 1 Samuel 13 and 14. So hold your place in 1 Samuel 23 and flip back about 10 chapters. I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5. Okay? When you're there, hold up your Bible. 1 Samuel 13, verse 5. Got it. Good. Let's read together. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So this is a pretty low moment in the history of Israel. Just prior to this scene, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had just defeated a garrison, a garrison of Philistine troops with a small force. And when Saul hears about it, even though, even though the entire standing army of Israel was a mere 3,000 troops, and even though it was Jonathan who scored the victory and not Saul, when Saul hears about this, he immediately parades throughout Israel to tell everybody how great of a military leader he is. The Philistines catch wind and they start to hear about these parades and they're furious. So they rally an army more than ten times the size of Israel's to destroy an Israelite city and to raise Israelite villages. As the dust of this foreign army rises on the horizon, the people of Israel are terrified. So much so that they hide in caves and behind boulders and in graves. So where is Saul in all of this? Turn the page and read with me in chapter 14, verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were, listen, about 600 men including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. So Saul's in a cave, surrounded by 600 men and a priest. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Right? In both passages, the Philistine army threatens a city in Israel. And in both cases, the anointed king is dwelling in a cave with 600 men. And in both cases, the priest of God accompanies him. So when patterns like this emerge, we ought to begin to draw comparisons. 
See, the author has been arranging this record to force us to compare and contrast Saul, who is a king like the nations, to David, who's a king after God's heart. We're meant to notice the similarities in their situation, and we're meant to begin to compare the work and words of David with the work and words of Saul. We're discovering what sort of a king has a heart like God's. We're discovering what a better man looks like in a similar situation. So work with me to recall the actions of Saul in this context, and then we'll compare those actions to David's. I don't want to read it all because it's a long text. So I'm going to pull verses and we'll start from there. Okay? Just listen closely. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Pharisee garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after them. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And there was a panic in the camp of the Philistines in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. So I want to take note of a few things. One, at no point does Saul take the initiative to lead his men into battle. Right? He's hiding in a cave from the Philistine army until the point where he notices that the Philistine army is fleeing in panic. Right? Two, when Saul and his army notice that the enemy is dispersing, Saul calls out to the priest to bring the ark. And we can assume here that what he means to do is to inquire of God whether or not to go into battle through the priest and then to allow the priest to fulfill his obligation to bless the army of Israel before they go out to battle. And then, this is the key point. Three, when Saul notices that things are going especially well, he panics because it's happening without him. And then he tells the priest functionally, never mind. And instead of seeking God and asking God, and instead of having God's priest bless the people... His hunger for glory is so strong that he never once asks God whether he should lead the people of Israel into battle. And he never once asks God's priest to bless the effort. This is a waste of time for him. Now compare that disposition with David's. They told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floor. And listen... Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. There's a silly little phrase that everybody's taught on day one of any Bible class. And an old country preacher I used to listen to would always repeat it. I'll try and mimic his voice. 
You got to figure out what therefore is there for. You've heard this, right? In other words, when you see the word therefore, it means that what follows is a response to what precedes. I like that rule. And it works especially well in this passage. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. Why did David inquire of the Lord? Because someone told him that the Philistines were attacking a city in Israel. There is no mediating step here. As soon as David learns that the enemy is attacking God's people, he runs to God. That's the disposition of the better man. That's the disposition of the king after God's heart. Trouble? Run to God. Plead with God. Ask God for wisdom. And notice that every time David asks for God for anything in this passage, God responds. Not so with Saul. For years now, every time Saul inquires of God, there's only silence. See, the first few sentences of this passage teach us that the coming king of Israel does nothing without God's word and God's work and God's blessing. He seeks God in times of distress. He remains intimate with God throughout trial. He intercedes on behalf of God's people. While the king, like the nations, dismisses his need for God's blessing and treats the things of God as an obstacle to his own glory, the coming king of Israel seeks God not twice, but four times in this short passage. It's his first instinct when trouble arises. Let's keep moving. The passage says that David inquired of the Lord. And this, pat, this phrase is repeated throughout the passage and indeed throughout the book. So I want to explore what that means. It's a little bit more complex than just praying as we know it. And this passage, in a way, hinges upon how David inquires after God. So I think it's worth exploring. We could look at a number of passages in Samuel to understand this action, but For the best one, I think we'll have to jump ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 28. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can. It's in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6. Listen to this. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Okay. I like that verse because it sort of summarizes briefly how the process of asking God questions worked in ancient Israel. See, the anointed king had a special relationship to God because he was God's representative. God, indeed, is the king of Israel. And the flesh and blood king is something like a steward, a servant of God, a representative of God. So the priests of God and the prophets of God were always close at hand to relay the king's questions and to relay God's answers because often the king needed God's counsel. That's the dynamic that's supposed to be in play all the time. 
So we can suppose that the king asks questions to God either directly by praying, this is how Hannah asks God for a son, or indirectly by asking the priest or the prophet to speak to God, this is how typically Saul works. And the implication of this verse is that God typically responds to these requests in one of three ways. One, by giving the anointed king prophetic dreams. Two, by speaking directly through a prophet. Or three, by casting the Urim and Thummim. You'll have to ask Colby whether or not I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now the last one is a bit obscure. Because we don't know an awful lot about the Urim and the Thummim. What we do know is that God asks the priests to carry these items in the holy ephod. One of the priestly garments prescribed in the law. And when the people of Israel needed to ask God for direction, they were asked to use these objects to determine God's will. The best guess, I think, is that they work like lots. They were cast almost like dice. And the result would be read and interpreted by the priest. Now what's important to understand about the Urim and the Thummim was that apparently they could either give the priests an affirmative answer or a negative answer. Or they would fall in such a way as to reflect no response at all. In other words, the Urim and the Thummim could relate God's answer yes and they could relay God's answer no Or they could also relay God's silence. But it doesn't appear that they can do anything else. So when David inquires of the Lord, he could be praying to God directly. Or he could be asking Abiathar, who was with him at the time, to relay his questions. We also know from later passages that the prophet Gad was likely present at the same time. So there's also a possibility that David has asked Gad the prophet to relay his questions to God. But the focus of the text is not how he inquires of God, but how frequently he inquires of God. Look back at the passage in 1 Samuel 23. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered, arise, I will go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So what's unique about this moment is that David receives an unambiguous response from God. But David's men are so afraid and the odds are so impossible that David goes to God a second time to make very sure that his might will protect his people. And in both cases, God encourages the anointed king to protect the people of Israel. And in the last case, he promises to move mightily to crush the enemy, by their hand. So pick it back up in verse 5. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. What's really quite amazing about this moment is that David's got about 600 men with him. And these weren't the finest soldiers in Israel. 
These were the indebted, the broken, the bitter, the social rejects among God's people. So a ragtag group of about 600 indebted social outcasts took on the entire Philistine army. And apparently they were wildly successful because the city is saved and David and his men walk away with a ton of swag. Again, it's helpful to look back and reflect on Saul's situation. Anointed king, 600 men, a mighty Philistine force. Saul hangs back in the cave until the momentum has carried the people of Israel to victory. And then he rushes onto the battlefield to declare victory over the slain bodies of his enemies. But not David. As soon as David learns about a mighty enemy, he runs to the presence of God to ask if he can protect God's people. In Saul's case, Jonathan saves the people of God by the might of God in a spirit of prophecy, but but not so with David. In David's case, David rushes upon the enemy to save the people of God by the might of God. This is a king after God's heart. God is mighty to save His people, and He does so through His faithful anointed king. Let's keep moving. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant... And the Lord said, he will come down. Now to this point, nearly all of the connections we've made are to other passages within the book of Samuel. But here it's difficult to ignore the shadow. David is a type, as we discussed last week. And and sometimes the author of Samuel records episodes of David's life that bear an uncanny resemblance to the life and work of Christ. And this is one of those moments. Again, step back for a moment and think about it in broad terms. The anointed king of Israel is sent by God to save God's people. And what is their response? Betrayal and rejection. Think, just think for a moment about the audacity on display. This city was just besieged by a mighty force. Can you imagine... Smoke from their fires blackens the horizon. The ground shakes. And you know what they're like. And you know what they'll do to your family. To you. When they break down the city gates. Truly, there is no hope for the city of Keilah until the Savior arrives. These people have their lives because the anointed king came to save them. And took upon his shoulders their impossible burden. 
the people of Keilah are at this moment living and breathing because David risked his life on their behalf. And yet they're ready to surrender their Savior to death. He came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. He was betrayed by those he came to save. This is a picture of the coming work of Jesus. And that's not all. I want to explore all this business about the ephod. The author makes a point to remind us that Abiathar the priest is with David, but this time he makes a note that Abiathar has been carrying with him an ephod made of linen. We need to understand what an ephod is before we can understand the significance of this moment. As I mentioned before, the ephod was a priestly garment mandated by the law. We don't know a whole lot about what it looked like, but we do know that on the shoulders were woven two stones engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. And we do know that it contained a pocket within which was the Urim and the Thummim. In other words, what this, this was a garment to be worn only by the priest. And it was worn specifically to ask questions of God on behalf of the people of Israel. So listen, what happens here in this passage is fascinating. The author reminds his readers that Abiathar, the priest, accompanies David. And then David learns that Saul has rallied all his forces of Israel against him. And and, and he's on the way to besiege Keilah. And as soon as he discovers the plot against him, David turns to the priest. But he does not, as we might expect, quote, inquire of the Lord according to the usual formula. Or else the text might simply say, as it did just a moment ago, David inquired of the Lord. Instead, David says, bring the ephod here. You want to hear something that I think is amazing? Every time the ephod is mentioned from the beginning of Samuel until just now, at this moment... Every time the ephod is mentioned, it's in the possession of the priests, being worn by the priests in the service of the priesthood. But from this point forward, every time the ephod is mentioned in the book of Samuel, it's being worn by David himself. When Saul needed to inquire of the Lord, he'd call upon the priest who would put on the ephod and call upon God, But when David speaks to God, he bears the garment of the priest and he serves in the role of the priest. When Saul has questions, he turns to the prophets to hear the word of God. But when David speaks to God, the Spirit of God himself works prophetically within him. We get glimpses like this all the time. In some passages, David teaches us what the Messiah will be like. When he rescues his people from their enemies. In this way, David teaches us about the coming king. And in some passages, David teaches us what the Messiah will be like when he speaks directly to God and hears directly from God. In some passages, David teaches us what the Messiah will be like when he performs the role of the priest and dons the holy garments and represents the people. In this way, David teaches us about the great high priest who will represent the people and atone for their sins. 
We get glimpses like this all the time, but rarely do we get both in the same passage singing in chorus. What will the coming Messiah be like? He will be a mighty king and he will be a great high priest. Amen? And that means something for you and I. If David is a type of Jesus, if his work and words are a shadow of the work and words of Jesus, if his rise to the throne is a pattern that's fulfilled in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then reading these words can equip us to better understand our coming King. And reading these words can equip us to prepare for His return. It's a matter of application. If this is a shadow of our coming King, we must trace that shadow and respond to it accordingly. And I can see at least one way to respond. When David heard that the people of Israel were in danger, he immediately ran to the throne of God to intercede. Without hesitation, he sprinted to the battlefield ready for war. David risked his life to rescue and protect his people who were suffering. And his courage to face the enemy and his zeal to protect every son or daughter of Abraham, and his hope in the might of God to work salvation, all of this is but a grim shadow of the might of God working through Christ. Jesus Christ, our mighty King, is the great victor of this in every age. Amen. The power of God in display in the work of Christ, the mighty King and the great High Priest, that power of God on display in Jesus is unmatched. There is no parallel. When the people of God were lost without hope, when they were broken and enslaved by a terrible enemy, Christ the valiant rushed to their aid. Our hope was purchased by His grit and His might and his endurance, and his sacrifice. To whom do you run when you're in danger? How do you respond when you are afraid? Christian, the battle is won, and the victor lives. We spend a lot of time talking about what that means for your future. But have you considered what it means for your today and for your tomorrow and for your next week and for your next month and for your two years from now? Have you thought about what the victory of Christ means for the hard days? When you don't have enough money to pay the bills. When you've lost your job. When you receive that phone call from your doctor or from your child's doctor. When you feel loneliness and look around and and think, I don't have friends or family. 
when the words cancer cripple you? Have you thought about what the victory of Christ means for those hard days? Here's the answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how, he'll, how will He also not give, with, give us with Him graciously all things? I butchered reading that because I'm emotional right now, so I'm going to read it again. <laughs> he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Are you in danger? Are you afraid? You must trust in Jesus. Look, there is no category for a Christian who trusts Jesus for future grace, but doesn't trust Him for present grace. There isn't a category for a Christian who trusts that Christ's work is big enough to rescue him from the wrath of God, but not big enough to sustain him through momentary suffering. That is an inconsistent position that we must fight with all the fervor of the redeemed full of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that Jesus is mighty, and if you believe that He has finished the work of redemption, then you must believe that He is able to give you what you need to get through whatever causing you pain. You must. Look, suffering may lead us to despair. But in those moments, we can rest in the might and mercy of God. Because when the people of God are in danger, our coming King is mighty to save. So when danger looms on the horizon, look with hope to the royal priest who speaks directly with the Father and who intercedes on your behalf. And look with hope on the mighty King who has won every battle for your good. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.